Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today on the show. Now, before we get into our main topic, which is an interview of Dr. Glenn Sunshine about his new book, Slaying Leviathan, we want to cover our law of the day. Today's law is Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 9, and here are the words of the Lord. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. All right. Well, that's a very long law, but an important one. And What are some of the contexts that we see in this passage? First of all, we know that the Israelites have not yet entered the land of Israel or crossed over the Jordan, as the law itself says. Uh, The situation in this place is one of chaos. And in fact, the passage says, you shall not do what each of you is doing today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. So you have chaos where everyone does what they want or what they think is right. There's no central authority or, shall I say, um, foundation uh, yet for uh, a standard system of morality. Now, God is providing a law for them to build and to maintain society. And this is to be the law of the land when they are established in it. Now, essentially, God has given Israel a constitution that establishes them as a nation, a covenant nation. And the land that they're entering into is to be purged of the gods of that land, along with the laws that those gods enforce. Because in the ancient world, gods had a jurisdiction over a particular place. Uh, We see this uh, even in the Greek and Roman world, where you have gods of different things. You know, Ares or Mars is the god of war, and if you were engaged in battle, you might um, offer sacrifice to him. Or uh, Neptune, Poseidon, is the god of the ocean. So if you were going on a long sea journey, you would offer sacrifice to him to make sure that everything was covered because that god controlled that domain. So you would go to that god for that domain uh, if you were there. Now, the same is true in the ancient world, ancient Israel, where you have different gods of different parts of the land. The Egyptians had various gods. Some of them were, you know, the Nile River, uh, the sun, things like that. Or you have um, other gods mentioned in um, in the uh, Old Testament. So you have like Baal Peor, 
basically means Baal of the land of Peor. So you have various gods of different parts of the land. And each god had a jurisdiction over that piece of ground. And in the case of Israel, God says, I am to be the Lord over your land. And these gods are to be eradicated, purged, removed from the land. The old order is to be destroyed and purged. And, and worship is the beginning of culture. We, as people, we become what we worship and we serve the gods that we worship. And there's always a God over the system. There's always a God of the land. And whatever a people value, whatever they worship, uh, that is their God. And that is going to lead to certain laws or practices or culture. So culture, what that which is grown, cultivate, what, whatever is grown, that comes from the seeds that are planted. And the seeds that are planted is that of what, what is your faith? What is your God? What, what do you worship? Um, is it idols? Is it, is it the one true God? Is it yourself? So whatever you worship, that's going to grow to produce a particular culture. And then laws come from the culture. Whatever a people value, they will set laws to protect what they value and to punish things that threaten what they value. So who we worship determines how our society is going to be ordered and what laws are going to be established. Now, here, God establishes the foundation of his people to live, proper worship. That's what the passage is about, and that's the first commandment. Worship the Lord your God, only one God, right? And the idea here is that God establishes that foundation of worship, and out of that will grow uh, the culture and will grow the laws. And there's not to be any syncretism or harmonization with these other idols, if you will. Um, they, the Israelites are not to borrow from the other pagan nations. They're not to incorporate uh, worship of the ashram and the high places and the, and the groves uh, into their own worship. But this is not a matter of destroying historical sites. It's not like Israel is eradicating all history in the land. No, what they're eradicating is currently active and, and used pagan sites of worship. And what God wants is for them to get rid of that stuff uh, if they're going to establish their own culture. They need to protect what is valuable and to defend themselves, to guard against that which is a threat to the established order. Now, how would we apply this law within the church today? Well, within the church, specifically, Christians are not to adopt idolatry of non-Christians. We're not to incorporate the pagan practices or other religious practices of, uh, of, idol of idolatry into our worship service. We're not to go back to our sin, so we're not to go back to Egypt, as, as God told Israel, and we're not to join with the world. We're not to incorporate um, the pagans and the, and the idols into our worship. So this speaks to the importance of having doctrinal purity, uh, being clear what you believe and what you teach, and having purity on matters of worship. That you don't just do whatever you want in worship, but you follow what God has established in his word. You don't 
incorporate things into worship that are prohibited by God. So quite simply, the church is to live by a different law from the surrounding unbelieving culture. We see a good example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll let me read it here, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So, we see here, Paul is is telling the church in Corinth, Christians should judge other Christians. And for us to take our problems and to go before pagan, pagan, you know, judges, the pagan law, to ask for a settlement of of the dispute, essentially that is to say that God's law, God's ways are not sufficient. Because, you know, who do you appeal to? You always appeal to the higher authority. All right, so we have a, a you know a local a local county court or whatever, and you appeal to the state, and then you appeal to the Supreme Court. Whatever you're appealing to is the highest court of the land, and it's it's a shame for God's people, at least in this context here, to instead of dealing with the issue in house amongst believers, to appeal it to pagan law, to essentially pagan judges and a pagan system, if you will, to solve their problems. Uh, essentially, that is declaring that the pagan system, the pagan law, is a higher power and higher authority over God. So, essentially, that is the idea here, that the Christians are to live according to God's ways, not the world's ways, and they should be able to handle that within themselves. So now, what about within the culture? We've talked about within the church a little bit. What about the culture? Well, like I said before, all societies have a god that they worship over their system. It could be multiple gods that have, you know, various domains, um, usually submitting to an overall god like Caesar. The Roman Empire had allowed many different gods to worship as long as everyone offered a pinch of incense to Caesar. So you could do whatever you wanted as long as you obeyed Caesar, because Caesar is Lord. Now, any culture that wishes to survive must preserve itself, and that involves destroying and removing that which threatens it. It involves establishing a particular way of life. So the pattern we see in the law from Deuteronomy is no different than any other culture. Any culture is going to want to value something, and it's going to be threatened by something else. So it's it's going to destroy and purge that which it views to be a threat, and it's going to protect and enforce and support that which it views to be valuable. Um, So all cultures punish treason. There's always a concept of treason because they recognize its danger. And God's law here in Deuteronomy is telling Israel, like, this is how you're to protect your culture, and this is how you are to um, reject or purge 
uh, unbelieving cultural practices um, out from you. So any society, though, is, is either built on idolatry or it's built on faith in the true God. And if it's built on idolatry, it's going to ultimately lead to chaos and tyranny. Remember, unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers strive in vain to build it. So any house, any system, any society, any culture needs to be built upon the word of God for it to be strong and to endure. Uh, we see this among many Proverbs, right? We have Proverbs sixteen twelve. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Or we have Proverbs twenty nine fourteen. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Or you have Proverbs twenty five five. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. So the idea here is that the establishment of a throne, the securing of the the authority, the culture, the nation, um, is based on whether you embrace idolatry or you embrace worship of the one true God, true righteousness. And so the question we have today is, which, which one are we going to follow uh, with regards to our culture? Are we going to be a culture where every man does what is right in his own eyes? Total anarchy? Are we going to be a culture that submits to idolatry and essentially to tyranny, as was the case in Babylon and Egypt, Persia, Greece, and Rome? Or are we going to live free, but that can only happen if we build our house upon the word of God? So that is our law of the day. With that, I want to move into our main topic. So today I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Glenn Sunshine about his new book, Slaying Leviathan. Dr. Sunshine is now retired professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's written numerous books, including the one that we're going to be discussing today. He's also the co-host of the Theology Podcast, and I look forward to this interview, and I hope that you will find it to be a blessing. So without further ado, interview with Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Well, Dr. Sunshine, I really appreciate you coming on to the show today. Uh, I've been looking forward to it since uh, your book, Slaying Leviathan, came out. And so I want to just kind of begin for uh, my listeners uh, asking you uh, what, what the basic premise of the book is and essentially like what is Leviathan and why should we be concerned about it? Okay, well, I'll start with that. Um, Leviathan was a book written by Thomas Hobbes in the 1600s and in it, he argued that the king should be an absolute ruler over everything in life, um, you know, from, uh, you know, law, of course, things like that, but even matters of religion, uh, all in every area, the king should, his authority should go. And so Leviathan, for me, becomes a metaphor for all kinds of totalitarian governments. And what the book Slaying Leviathan is about is the way Christianity has opposed that idea of government through the centuries, uh, both by arguing for limited government, for arguing essentially for a fundamental distrust of governing authorities, uh, arguing for unalienable rights, uh, all kinds of things like that. And then also uh, with the rise of Protestantism in the 16th century, developing ideas of when and how resistance is justified when government turns tyrannical, when it oversteps its bounds. 
Okay. So when, when you mentioned slaying Leviathan, you're predominantly referring to the, the act of, of resisting that spread of tyranny? Well, it, it's a little more than that. Sometimes it's resisting the spread of tyranny, but along with that, it's developing alternative visions and understandings of government uh, with the basic idea that you know government has legitimate authority that's God-given, but there are a lot of things that don't fall under the government's purview and the government shouldn't really be messing with those. And this has been an idea that's been in Christianity since Jesus, quite literally. So, um, you know, the idea is that at least in terms of political theology, Christianity has always been about slaying Leviathan. It's always been about getting rid of totalitarianism. Because when Jesus uh, was alive, the Roman government was effectively totalitarian. Hmm. And so... Well, I guess I have a couple of questions there, and they're kind of related. The first is, it seems like it's uh, slaying the Viathan or, or resisting that that tyranny or or rebuilding a new vision for uh, human government is something that's a continual process over time, um, but something that Jesus had something to say about, and the church was um, key to to doing. So how has it been fought historically, uh, and, and what role did did Christianity play in that fight, if you will? Okay, well, let, let's start off uh, just with the ideas, you know, with sure. what the fight is over ideas. Um, and this really starts with Jesus. Um, when, he's shown, when he's asked, should he, uh, is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Mm -hmm. Now, it's easy to overlook what that's saying. What it's saying, number one, is that Caesar has certain things that are legitimately his. But it's also saying that not everything is. And further, God is the one who determines what is Caesar's and what isn't. Okay. So from this, now, again, in the context of the Roman Empire, the emperor, well, Rome was ruled basically on the basis of law. I mean, that's at least the principle of it. But the Roman emperor was the supreme authority in the political world, and the political world really extended into every area of life. I mean, even to the point where if you had a conflict within a religious organization, one of the cults, the emperor was supposed to step in and mediate it. Mm -hmm. So the de facto creed in the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Hmm. Christians then come along and say Jesus is Lord, which implies Caesar is not. And that's really based on Jesus's own words. We give to Caesar ungrudgingly what Caesar's, but there are things that don't belong to him and we are not gonna go there. This is how it starts. Um, when Christianity is finally legalized in the 300s, it we have a 300 year history of the church being a sporadically persecuted religious minority with no support from the government. What that says is that church and state are separate institutions. The church can, can exist independently of the state and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That opens the door to what's technically called civil society. That's the idea that there are intermediate institutions that stand between the government and the individual. Things like family, uh, education, um, uh, business, labor, you know, uh, there's a range of these kinds of things that are out there that are supposed to govern their own affairs um, with the government basically making sure everything's done fairly and nobody oversteps their bounds. Mm -hmm. Then you get St. Augustine coming along, Augustine of Hippo, uh, probably best known if people know him at all for predestination. 
but he is also really important for really formulating clearly the doctrine of original sin. And what original sin says is that everybody is corrupt and corruptible. And when applied to government, what that means is that no one in government can be trusted with absolute power. You cannot have Caesar as Lord because he will abuse his power. So the net result is political thinking coming out of Augustine is, um, you know, all through the Middle Ages, you have ideas of limited government, the idea of absolutist government or divine right of kings. None of that stuff was present in the Middle Ages. All of that's <laughs> later. Uh, the Middle Ages, coming from Augustine's thought, recognized that government had to be limited and that you had to have systems of checks and balances within government to prevent government from usurping too much power. Uh, we think the idea of checks and balances was unique to the Constitution. It wasn't. They got the idea from over a thousand years, well, about a thousand years by that point of European government. Yeah, and, and that's a that's an important point that I definitely want my listeners to take away um, is the appreciation for those who came before us that fought those battles and and that ultimately led to the fruit of what we saw with the founding, let's say, of the United States. I mean, you mentioned St. Augustine. What would you mention other key battles or moments that you would that you want your readers to really consider and remember and highlight? Well, what we've talked about so far are the uh, the challenges to government authority, uh, you know, sort of direct challenges. Uh, we also have to look at it from another direction. And there's a whole bunch of, of people that I'm not even going to bother naming because nobody's ever heard of them, who are medieval theologians and especially canon lawyers, church lawyers, who developed a series of arguments for certain rights that were unalienable. That is to say, they could, they could never be taken away from you legitimately. Uh, you can never be deprived of them. And among others, they will uh, argue for the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to property. So these three will then be picked up later by John Locke, uh, in his two treatises on government, but he's not being original there. What he's doing is he's bringing in ideas from medieval theologians. And these are, in a sense, positive statements in that they're, they're talking about what it is that we have, that we have been given by God that government doesn't have any direct authority over. Hmm. Um, and again, it's a, it's a form of limitation on government, but it's, I think, cast in a much more positive way. And if you, this isn't the way the arguments actually are formulated, but if you take a look at Genesis, you can see where these things come from. God grants human beings life before government. Therefore, <laughs> government cannot arbitrarily take life away from someone. God gives them liberty in the Garden of Eden. Now, liberty is, is one of these words we don't really understand so well anymore. The idea of liberty is the ability to make free choices within boundaries the boundaries set by divine and natural law. Uh, if you eliminate boundaries and uh, say that there are no restrictions on your behavior, you move away from liberty and into something called license, which was always seen as a negative thing and something we don't have a right to. Our modern concept of freedom is much more akin to license than it is to liberty. No one can tell me what to do. <laughs> now, um, so liberty shows up in the garden where God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit of any tree except that one. There's a boundary condition set up, but within the garden, except that one tree, they have freedom to do what they will. 
uh, property shows up in the garden as well. This is something that Locke is going to particularly set up in this way. It's called the labor theory of property. When you work for something, you put something of yourself in it. And since you effectively own yourself, once you put yourself into something, you own it up to some with certain restrictions. Easy way to understand this. Again, Locke doesn't go here, but this is the, the, you can see this once again in the garden. God tells Adam and Eve to tend the trees, tend the garden, and eat the fruit meaning they have the right to the fruit of their labor, literally. So these rights are all what I would describe as pre-political, that is to say they exist before government does, and therefore government may have the ability to regulate these to some extent, but they are largely independent of government control. You cannot arbitrarily deprive someone of any of these rights. So this medieval rights theory that will then be picked up by Locke is another important event. Um, moving from there, we can look at the Reformation, and there are a whole bunch of things that happened during the Reformation. Luther, for example, is going to insist that people have freedom of conscience. He's going to say that both church and state are instituted by God for the good ordering of society, but they can only order externals. Neither of them have authority over conscience. Um, Calvin is going to uh, go into Exodus and look at the way God established his covenant with the people of Israel, where God effectively became king over the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, and what he sees happening there is God does this, number one, in the form of a covenant. And number two, he doesn't ratify the covenant, covenant until there are until the people of Israel agree to its terms three separate times. Hmm. So what this means is that to Calvin, if this is how God establishes government, this is how human government also ought to be established. It should be in the form of a covenant, and it should be done with the consent of the government. Yeah, and one thing that you, you, know, you bring that up about um, the covenant in the Old Testament and how Israel was established, I, I remember reading not too long ago, uh, I believe it's I believe it's in Deuteronomy where the commandment is given that the king is supposed to make a copy of the law uh, himself and to read it all the days of his life. The idea being that he is under the authority of of the covenant, if you will. He's not an absolute monarch. Is that a fair understanding? Yes, that that's absolutely the case, and. This is going to be an inspiration. I don't think I got into the details on this in the book, but this will be an inspiration to thinkers about, you know, uh, within the Calvinist tradition, particularly political thinkers who are going to argue that the nature of the covenant that is made with government is there's a covenant between God and the, and the king and people, and there's a covenant between the king and the people. They're, they're sort of two separate covenants, but they're, it, the second covenant, the covenant between the king and the people, is built on and developed out of the covenant between God and the king and people. What happens then, you've got this, this sort of a dual covenant system at work there, so that the covenant between the king and people is under the authority of the covenant with God. And again, things like the law of the king in Deuteronomy are going to be part of the inspiration for that. And that kind of I mean, uh, leads me to the next question is that you've traced out the history of this in your book, and 
it is quite eye-opening, certainly. And I, I guess it, the idea comes to my mind or the question comes up, like, well, why has, I get, I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, but why has perhaps Christianity been more effective at doing this with regards to tyranny than, let's say, Buddhism, Confucianism, or Islam? I mean, I know it's kind of beyond the purview of the book, but what are some, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, again, culturally, the idea of limited government is a contribution of Judaism and Christianity. Hmm. In Islam, there is no distinction between mosque and state. Um, people with authority have authority, whether it's political or religious or community, whatever. So the lack of a distinction there is going to mean the idea of limited government is going to ill fit the Muslim worldview. Buddhism then is fundamentally otherworldly, as is arguably at least some forms of Hinduism. Uh, Confucianism is based very much on a series of relationships between, you know, the king and the people, the husband and the wife, the father and the son, the older brother and the younger brother, and friend to friend, all of which are hierarchical, and all of which really depend on something they call filial piety. Um, so that, again, is not a context in which these ideas of limitations on the authority of the superior are going to uh, really fall into place. You know, probably the best way of, of summarizing this is that with the exception really of Christianity, uh, there's a quote that came from the Greek Peloponnesian War, where Athens um, was going to be moving on an island. And the people on the island said to the Athenians, look, we've never done anything to you. We've never attacked you. We're not your enemies. Why, you know, why are you doing this? Why can't you just leave us alone? And the Athenian response was, the strong do what they will, the weak suffer what they must. That is the ideology of the world apart from Christianity. And under those circumstances, the people who rule are understood as having a right to rule because they're powerful. The fact that they're powerful demonstrates that they deserve to be the ones who are ruling. Hmm. Christianity is operating on a different set of rules here. That might does not make right, but that there is a higher power there. Right. And, you know, when you read throughout the Old Testament, when you read in the New Testament, there's the concern for the poor, there's the concern for the weak, there's the concern for widows and orphans, uh, all of these kinds of things. You don't see, you get bits of that in other cultures, but you don't see the strong emphasis on that that you have in scripture. One thing that, um, I remember reading as well, and when you were talking about the difference between license and, and liberty, uh, I remember just seeing the pattern all throughout, let's say, the book of Judges, where uh, the people of Israel fall into idolatry and they sin, and then God just gives them over to essentially oppression, tyranny, whether it's through the Philistines or the Moabites or, or whatever, and then, of course, they repent cry out to the Lord, and he delivers them. So, I mean, it seems like there's a connection there between when, as a people fall more and more into sin, they actually end up not getting the freedom that they want, but they end up getting tyranny. Can you speak to that for a little bit? Well, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, the When you give yourself 
well, here, there, this can, we can approach this a couple of different ways. Sure. When you are living a completely self-centered life, uh, when this becomes the norm in the culture, it creates uh, all kinds of instabilities within the culture. You, you know, you get rioting, you get, you get theft, um, looting, you get all kinds of things of this sort. Uh, and eventually it will get to a point where in practical terms, the people who are victims uh, or who are just getting sick and tired of this are going to call for a strong man to step in and set things right. You know, so just on a practical level, if people aren't governing themselves, they will be governed by someone else. And that someone else will, will basically be, like I said, a strong man or something along those lines, because that's what's necessary to restore order. Um, the other part of it, though, just sort of generally that people don't appreciate um, is, um, is the effect of sin generally in terms of the way it enslaves us. It's really interesting. If you read Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 19, the first part of it talks about how God reveals himself in nature. The second part talks about how God reveals himself in scripture. But people ignore the last part, which is really, I think, the punchline of the entire psalm, which talks about how the psalmist, even with all of these instructions from God, is still falling into sin. He still has problems with sin. He still doesn't, he doesn't even know himself. And what, what he says is, one of, the, one of the verses says, who can discern his errors? cleanse me. Now, that's who can discern his errors. That's right after he's talked about how the law is perfect and everything else. Who can discern his errors? Cleanse me from hidden faults. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. The difference between hidden faults and presumptuous sins is a presumptuous sin is a sin you do knowing full well it's wrong. You're being presumptuous before God and deciding I'm going to do it my way, not yours. And what's interesting about this is he says, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. If you give yourself over to sin, if you intentionally commit presumptuous sins, they will rule over you. They eventually will take control of your life. And you know, the, 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 it effectively is addictive. And you become a, well, what does Paul, how does Paul describe it? You become a slave to sin. And when that happens on a societal level, once again, you either get divine judgment or you get a human who is going to step in to restore order. A human, an individual, a coalition, something is going to come in and restore order. And once again, you end up in bondage. Oh, is it fair to say that perhaps that the divine judgment could take the form of a tyrant? Yep, I think that's fair too. And we certainly see that in the book of Judges. Mm -hmm. And notice what Judges says. Every man did, there, there, there was no king in the land. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. What does that mean? It means license. They are not living within the boundaries of natural and divine law that God set for them. And license is what led to judgment. It leads to bondage. It leads to all kinds of things, both internal bondage in the form of, of slavery to sin, but also larger scale bondage as well. It definitely uh, <laughs> highlights the importance of the gospel 
the Christian faith and of knowing not only our, our faith, but knowing history as well. Um, and so I know that we're getting close to our time, but I do wanted to uh, bring up a question perhaps of, of application. There's a lot of application that we could draw from this, but if someone it finishes reading your book, they put it down. Um, and kind of the question that I would want to ask you is, you know, what, what next, what, what are some things that a Christian can or should do to battle, resist Leviathan or to equip themselves uh, against Leviathan? Is it, is it education? Is it appreciation for history, theology? Is it more involvement in civics? What, what would your takeaway be for, for someone? Well, uh, I would add, by the way, that resistance to tyranny, there's a well-developed Protestant theory on how that gets done. And in a lot of ways, Locke and the founders of the US were operating in a context in which Protestant resistance theory was part of their, their mental world. You know, they, they knew that. The thing that's brilliant about Locke is he synthesizes a lot of these things together, and then Jefferson picks up on it, and it's used in the Declaration. Um, other parts of it show up with the Constitution and so on. So being aware of the history of this, the idea is the how and why is important. Mm -hmm. We need to get past proof texting on Romans 13 that just says, do whatever it is that the government tells you, as long <laughs> as it's not explicitly sin. We need to get beyond that, because that's really not what Romans 13 is saying. Um, we have a lot of options in a republic that they didn't have in a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we have to actually start with Jesus's words, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God's what's God's. We need to be asking ourselves regularly, does this belong to Caesar? You know, so uh, when you have churches that are shut down and prevented from meeting out of fear of COVID, mm -hmm. is that, a decision that properly belongs in the hands of Caesar, or is that a decision that belongs in the hands of God? Um, does Caesar have the authority to shut down worship? Does Caesar have the authority to tell us what we do in worship services? You're not allowed to sing. These are questions that we don't think about very often. And I'm not going to give you answers, but what I'm going to say is you really need to think this stuff through, ask the question, and really wrestle with the answer. Because in some cases, it's not really clear. But in other cases, I would say there are, there are examples where Caesar has very deliberately overstepped his proper bounds. Now, the question then is what happens when Caesar does that? At that point, we are literally in a situation of tyranny. So that's pretty much the definition. So the question is then, what should we do then? Well, again, in a republic, we've got options that weren't available in other times and places. We certainly can vote. We can certainly get involved in political campaigns. We can certainly write emails or letters or phone calls to our legislators. We can show up at town council meetings and school board meetings. Um, there's a whole raft of things that we can do that, that are, are peaceful, that are fully within the provisions of our government um, that are guaranteed, as a matter of fact, in the First Amendment, well, in the Bill of Rights, but especially in the First Amendment, we should do that. We should use those legal means to protest, to inform 
uh, to seek redress of grievances, all of these kinds of things. If that fails, and if the government digs in its heels and is recalcitrant, then we can move up to things like civil disobedience. But the first steps, we really can't jump there right away. Uh, the first steps are much earlier than that. And when it comes to civil disobedience, by definition, that means breaking the law and accepting the consequences. Hmm. And this brought to mind uh, something that you, you did mention in your book, and I didn't get a chance to ask you now, but I, f I figured I'd bring it up now. But the, the role of the lesser magistrate um, mm -hmm. in this kind of that, that middle ground, if you will, between the people and the ultimate, well, the ultimate civil authority, the uh, federal government, um, what role do you see that playing lesser magistrates in this situation? Yeah, historically, this comes from Luther originally, then it passes through Calvin and the Huguenots into the Puritans, and it, it was part of the thinking of the founders. The idea here is that, you know, part of the powers that be, the, the, the president is not the only person who qualifies as one of the governing powers, one of the governing authorities. We have governors, we have mayors, we have sheriffs, we have town councils, we have all of these things, they're all part of the governing powers. And so the idea is that if uh, showing up with Luther, if there's going to be resistance to the emperor, it needs to be led by these lesser magistrates, these people who have legitimate authority within government, but who don't have as large a scope of operation as the emperor does. And you can find this with some theories of nullification, for example, with federal law. Uh, but where you see it, I think mo the most interesting place you see it are when towns or sometimes sheriffs will simply announce, we are not going to enforce this law. That would be an example of resistance by the lesser magistrate. So in a U.S. context, that would be the place where you see it most often, I think. What's interesting about that, because uh, it brings to mind a couple of examples, kind of in the reverse of what perhaps you and I would 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 expect or would desire. Uh, for instance, um, you have sanctuary cities or some or or the legalization of marijuana where the federal government has has made a law against something, but the state or the city says, no, no, we're actually just gonna do our own thing. And so it's interesting that our culture does have, even to this day, uh, lesser magistrates that are engaging in civil disobedience, but the federal government just kind of just lets it go. And it's just, I just found that very interesting right. point. There. It, it, it happens probably most often on the left, but there are examples from the right as well, where, for example, I've run into sheriffs who've said, we are not going to enforce uh, gun control laws, mm -hmm. you know, as an example. Mm -hmm. you know, so you can get it from both a conservative or a liberal position. But this is, again, this idea comes out of the, uh, the, the the tradition of Protestant resistance theory going back to Luther. Yeah, no, that's important stuff and uh, definitely something that we as Christians should be familiar with. Um, well, we are coming up on the end of our time, so I want to just uh, ask you, um, what are some other endeavors that, that you're currently engaged in and, and, and where can folks go to follow some of your other work and anything else you'd like to share before we close today? Okay, yeah, there are a few things. Number one, I just retired from the university, and I did that so that I can devote myself to doing more ministry work, teaching, writing, um, and so on. Uh, you can find me at, I, I've got a 501c3 ministry, it's called Every Square Inch Ministries, 
And you can find that at e square inch, that's e s q u a r e i n c h dot org. Uh, I'm also on a podcast called the Theology Pugcast, P U G. Uh, we started originally recording, recording it at a pub called the Corner Pug. So we called it the Theology Pugcast. I do that with uh, Chris Wiley, a pastor and former philosophy teacher, and Tom Price, a systematic theologian and ethicist. Um, and we have wide-ranging conversations on a wide range of topics. So, um, so you can find me there as well. Those would probably be the two best places to look for me, or you can always look me up on Facebook. Awesome. And just uh, for my listeners, I am a regular listener to the Theology Podcast, one of my, one of my favorites. So I always appreciate the, uh, the great conversations that you guys have, very thoughtful and thought-provoking. So uh, again, uh, thank you, Dr. Sunshine, for taking the time out of your, of your busy schedule uh, to come onto the show today. And uh, again, I, I, I commend uh, to my listeners uh, your book, Slaying Leviathan, and thank you for coming on, and I hope you have a, a blessed day, sir. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Sunshine about his book, Slaying Leviathan. Uh, again, I highly recommend this book. It's, it's, it's not very long. It's less than 200 pages, but it's filled with such gems and such good information that I think is useful for Christians to read and to consider. He makes some important points, and um, something that we really need to think about, especially as we see Leviathan growing more and more in our world today. And, and the question is, how are we going to respond to it? What are we going to do about it? So I encourage you to get the book and to just think through these topics and consider them. If you have any questions regarding the topic today, by all means, email me at the gbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to Facebook and search for Governed by God and message me that way. If you have a question for Dr. Sunshine, I will pass uh, that on to him. Or you could go to his website on Every Square Inch Ministries and um, contact him there. So again, thank you for joining me today. And until next time, take care and God bless.